Where is your hope? Where is your hope? Genuinely, I'd like you to pause and think, where is your hope? And by hope, I mean, what is it in your life that as long as you have that thing, you feel everything is going to be okay? It's that thing that allows you to breathe fully. It's a thing that allows you to relax your shoulders and release your stress. The thing that allows you to sleep at night. Each of us have something, and whatever that thing is, eventually becomes like a functional heaven. And our functional heaven keeps us from our functional hell. And the thing about life is that things don't always go as planned, do they? This journey of life is marked by a sense of striving and pursuing and chasing and looking for that thing that if we can catch it, everything will be okay. When a fisherman uses an artificial lure, the lure enters the water as a deception. Fishing lure companies have spent millions upon millions of dollars perfecting the size, the, the shape, the motion, the color, and the sheen of a lure to give the appearance to fish that this is something they must obtain. And in a moment of heightened desire, the fish grabs hold of that which thinks it is the real thing, only to realize it has been caught by something fake and phony and fraudulent. What can happen in life is we chase things and pursue things that have the appearance of satisfaction and fulfillment, only to realize even when we get those things, they failed to provide what was promised in the first place. Amen. And that is not only the story of our lives, it's the story of the people of God as well. And things are going well. Things are looking up and up. Their hopes and dreams seem to be a reality. But then things come crashing down. And the story we see in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah is an amazing story of renewal and restoration. It's, it's a new beginning. It's, it's exciting. It's, it's, it's wonderful. Things are going well for a period, but things don't end up how they intended. And the people fail, the leaders fail, and the city doesn't reach its potential. The people are longing for more. You know, the same happens in life. Life will leave you longing for more. And today I would like to chronicle for you the downturn of the story we've been looking at. And I'd like to show you what you should do when life leaves you 
longing for more. If you would, join me in Nehemiah 13 if you've got a copy of the scriptures. If not, the verses will be on the screen for you in our final installment of a teaching series, God's Not Done. And these are the words of Nehemiah in the final chapter of the book in chapter 13, beginning in verse 6. Nehemiah, the leader of God's people, he says this. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem is the city of God. It's where God has done the work of restoration and renewal. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king of Babylon, I went to the king. Nehemiah, for whatever reason, we're not giving the explanation, but Nehemiah returns back to exile. He returns back to Persia and Babylon. And it says, and after some time, we're not exactly sure how long he was there, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and what he saw was not good. He comes back to the city, he says, I then discovered the evil that Eliashib, which is the priest, he's the responsible for the spiritual services of God's people, the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah. Tobiah is He's outside of God's people, but for whatever reason, Eliashib, the priest, decides to get in bed with someone that is not even in the people of God. Nehemiah is struck. He's, he's confused. He's, he's perplexed. He, he's seen this amazing thing happen of what God's doing to, to make things right. It seems like a new beginning, a new start, but things don't go the way that Nehemiah Intended, And it says this in verse 10. I also found out that the portions of the Levites, those who worked in the temple, had not been given to them. People are holding out on the house of God so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. They can't even get a paycheck in the temple. They got to go out to the field. People aren't supporting the house of God. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? He said, what are you people doing? What is happening? This is not the way that it's supposed to go. Verse 15, jump down to 15. It says this, in those days, I also saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath, the Lord's holy day, the day of rest, and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine and grapes and figs and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. I warned them on the day when they sold food, verse 17. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and I said to them, what is this evil thing you are doing? Profaning the Sabbath day. Things are not going as Nehemiah intended. Verse 23. And in those days, I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, not even God's language, God's people. And they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. It's not great leadership strategies. <laughs> and this is the final chapter of the book. There's no time for anything to change. We're at the end. Like, what in the world is happening? What we see is we see the, the failure of God's people. We, we see three specific ways that Nehemiah, Nehemiah mentions that they fail. Here's number one is that they neglect the temple. They neglect the house of God, the, the, the work of God, the move of God, the, the, the movement of God, and they've neglected it. They've no longer made it a priority in their lives. 
as they said they would. And we see as well, number, number two, the failure, they, they neglect the Sabbath. Uh, the Sabbath, the whole, holy day that was meant for their good, meant for their rest, meant for them to stop and to remember that God does the work. And for them to stop and, and remember, and they were profaning the, the Sabbath. They had decided to, to work and to try to increase their economics, and they've profaned the Sabbath. And number three, we see the failure of God's people, the neglect of marital fidelity. They've neglected their marital fidelity and what they had committed and made an oath to God in the way that they would operate in marriage and family. At the end of the story, at the end of this story, if you were here last week, these things would hopefully sound familiar to you. It's the exact reversal of their former oath. They had previously, in just a couple chapters earlier, they had, had told God, God, we will, we will not mess up with, with marriage and family. We're going to do this your way. We're going to do this God's way. And they said, we're not going to mess up with the, the Sabbath and the way that we think about our work and our economics and the way that we treat the people that are in our, our care. We're not going to mess up on our, our economics. And we're, we're never going to neglect the temple of God and make sure that it's a priority in our lives. And we see here the exact reversal of their former oath. Here's the short uh, lesson from this, is that people fail. Uh, people fail. Uh, humans aren't perfect. Uh, people, people aren't perfect. Humans fail. And, and so the lesson then is don't put your hope in people. Don't put your hope in people. They're not perfect. They're not going to deliver on what you think they can deliver on. I promise you, your spouse can't save you like you want them to. Your kids can't save you like you want them to. Your employer can't save you like you want them to. And by God, the president can't save you like you want him to. The, the, the point is, is that people are a bad place to place your hope. Uh, pe people fail. People fail. People aren't perfect. And so we don't put our hope in, in people. And we see the, the devastating failure of the people of God, it doesn't end the way that it's supposed to end. It shouldn't go this way. It shouldn't end up like this. This is not their plan. This is not their strategy. And then, and then at the very end of the book, the, book the, the last three verses of the entire story ends this way in verse 29. Nehemiah says, remember them, oh my God. And I kind of imagine him saying it in my own words, oh my God. Because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. You're going to notice Nehemiah is doing a, quite a bit of finger pointing in this situation. He says, thus I cleanse them from everything foreign and I establish the duties of the priest and the Levites each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Nehemiah is trying to bolster himself at, at the end. And, and then here's, here's the final words of the book. It says, remember me, oh my God, for good. If, if, you could, if you could see Nehemiah with a pen in his hand as he's sitting in the back room of his home with his head down and the lights are low and he pins the words, remember me for good. His life hasn't turned out the way that he wanted it to. His plans haven't turned, turned out the way that he wanted them to. And then we recognize that his own leadership in his own life hasn't turned out the way that he wanted it to. And in a moment of desperation, in a, in a moment of crisis, he fails 
himself. We, we see the failure of God's leader. Here, here's four failures of God's leader. N- number one is he, he f- the failure to train adequately. He, he doesn't train up the people in, in the way that he, he should. Um, he, he doesn't uh, train them appropriately, and th- they fail. He, he doesn't equip them in the way that they should. Here's, here's number two, the failure to monitor suitably. He doesn't monitor the situation. He leaves. I don't know why. We don't give, we're not given the explanation, but he, he leaves. He doesn't set people up for success, and then he leaves. He abandons the situation. Anybody that sound familiar in your life? He, he doesn't train um, adequately, and then he doesn't monitor suitably. He, he doesn't actually support. He leaves the situation. He abandons the situation. And then when he comes back to the situation, he points his finger at everybody else. Number three, here's the third failure, the failure to take responsibility. He doesn't take responsibility for the situation. He says, God, your people, your people, look at them, look at them, look at everything that they have done. The leader never does that. The leader never points his finger at the people. The leader always points the finger at self. Everything rises and falls on leadership. It's the responsibility of the leader. But he doesn't take responsibility. He abdicates his responsibility and puts it, he deflects it onto someone else, the responsibility of the situation. And then number four is the failure to react appropriately. He doesn't react appropriately. Um, the, the scriptures don't necessarily say whether or not his actions were positive or negative in the way that he responded to his people. But I would try to argue that beating people and pulling out their hair is probably not God's design strategy for the way that you should lead God's people. And this isn't like a pass for you to go Old Testament on somebody, okay? We all got somebody in our life we'd like to go Old Testament on. Um, do you... So it's the failure to react appropriately. And he basically loses his mind, and, which just shows us that leaders fail. Leaders fail, and the lesson is we, we shouldn't put our hope in people, but we also don't put your hope in a leader. Don't put your hope in a leader. You're like, but Pastor Ethan, you're holding the mic, and you're our leader. Amen. Do not put your hope in me. Do not put your hope in me. I can't predict the future. I don't know what God's going to do in my life. I don't know what he has in store for me. I'm going to do my best to run this marathon long and hard and faithful. But in the event that anything happens, make sure you remember I said don't put your hope in me. Don't put your hope in um, a leader. Leaders fail. Leaders aren't perfect. Leaders don't do everything right. They, 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 mess, they mess up. They're sinful people just like uh, you. And so the, the point here is that, man, we, we, we can't put our hope in a, a leader because it's not going to turn out the way that we will. They're f- fallen and broken as well. And the story ultimately ends in brokenness. It's incredibly anticlimactic. Any, anybody like a story with a happy ending, by the way? Like, you're like you watch a movie that has like a bad ending. You're like, I just wasted two and a half hours of my life. What, what, what was the point of, of that? We want to end with a happy ending. We want to end on a high note in this story, the end of this book, just like the end of the book of Ezra, it ends in an anticlimactic way. And we're kind of left wondering, scratching our heads, where is there hope? A couple things I would encourage you with, it's this. First is that life has a way of not working out the way we expected. Life has a way of not working out the way we expected and our plans and our intentions and what we were hoping for our family, what we were hoping perhaps for a marriage or perhaps hoping for a career, even hoping for our own personal physical health, for our relationships, for our friendships, for 
whatever it is, in whatever area, whatever category, um, life has a way of not working out the way we expected. I'll say this is, well, even when we fail, God's faithfulness persists. God's faithfulness persists. And this is kind of the point of the book. The point of the book is kind of that you get to the end and you recognize that they didn't have it all together. They didn't actually do what they were supposed to do. They actually didn't quite have what it took to have a happy ending. Can I say to you today, you don't have what it takes to have a happy ending for your life either? That wasn't in my notes, which means it was, it was, some, it was for somebody today. Um, you don't have the ability on your own to create a fairy tale ending for your life. Some of you are living and striving and working to try to create a fairy tale ending, and you don't have the ability to do that. You don't have the power to do that. You don't have the strength to do that. It's out of your uh, control. You, you, you're going to fail. You're going to mess up. And the, the point is that uh, when we fail and when life fails around us, God's faithfulness persists. So when life surrounds us by failure, when you feel like you are engulfed by failure in your life, we should be reminded of the one who never fails. The one who never fails. I love what the scriptures say, and it's not on the screen, but Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 9, I love what the scripture says. God says to his people, for you are a people holy to the Lord, meaning separated to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. You're not She's not, he's not, they're not, there's only one. He is God. The Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, get this, to a thousand generations. To a thousand generations. Like God's faithfulness isn't going to run out at the end of this week, so you better make the best of this week. It's not going to... end with that third child that you had that you're not exactly sure how you're going to make it through another year. His faithfulness never ends. The point of a thousand generations isn't that you should count a thousand. The point is it's hyperbole speaking of God's faithfulness never ends. It's always, it's ongoing. It never ends. He never runs out of faithfulness. Um, It's just who he is. It's just part of his, his character, which means he has to be faithful. There's the fidelity that God has. And, and here's, here's, the, here's not only the story of Nehemiah, but this is the story of the entire Bible is that the Bible isn't about us. The Bible and the scriptures isn't about us. It actually isn't about humanity. It's not about the strengths and the triumphs of people. The story of the Bible is the story of God. It's a story of him. He's the central character. He's the main actor. He is the hero of the story. And the story is not about our successes, but his. It's not about our accomplishments, but his. It's not about our triumphs, but his. It's not about our awesomeness, but his. And Jesus, even with his disciples, he would have to give them a little bit of a hermeneutical lesson on understanding the scriptures. And Jesus, after he rose from the dead, he sat his disciples down and he explained to them what the story actually means. It says this in Luke 24, verse 44 and following. 
Jesus says, these are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, essentially saying the entire scripture must be fulfilled. Jesus is essentially saying that was writing about me. It was about me. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. It's like light bulbs started going on in their, he- going on in their heads and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You see, Christianity has the greatest answer to the question of evil and brokenness in the world. It's because Christ Jesus, the the Son of God, took on the brokenness himself and then resurrected over it to conquer it. And the point of the the book of Nehemiah isn't Nehemiah. The, The point of the book of Nehemiah isn't even the people of God. The story of Nehemiah ends with the people feeling and sensing there must be more. When you come to points in your life and you feel like there must be more, that's the point. That's where you're supposed to be. And the point of the book is that you're supposed to get to the end thinking, surely there is more. It leaves you longing for more. And life leaves you with broken and brokenness and emptiness. And we're discouraged and life will leave us this way. And if your hope is just in this life, you'll be as the apostle Paul says, we are of most, we are of most men miserable. Miserable. And the book ends kind of like uh, in a real bummer. I mean, it just... I mean, if you're like into literature, you're like, this is terrible. I mean, this is, but it's intentional. A, because it's historical. That was actually what happened. Uh, but B, it's intentional. And uh, the point is that you should feel and you should sense that God's not done. That God's not done. And even when there's failure of, of the people, even when there's failure of the leader, in, even when everything goes south, there's this sense that hope, hope, we have this inner sense of hopefully God's not done. And we end the book, and it should give us a, a, a future-oriented vision. You, you, end, you end the book, and you end in the state, and it should give you a future-oriented vision. See, you, you have to decide what kind of vision you're going to have. You, you, you can have a, wi- a windshield vision where you're looking through the front windshield, or you can have a rear view vision, looking through the rear view mirror. The, the point of this book is that it's supposed to be a windshield moment. It's supposed to be, give you a windshield vision that you're looking towards the future. And here's what the story would tell us is that um, God's not, dumb, God's not done, and, and, and he would actually come. God would actually come. Theologians refer to this as the first coming and the second coming of Christ. The story is about Christ. It's a story about the Messiah, the anointed one, the Son of God, who was coming. He's, he's the true and better Nehemiah who would actually come and be able to save his people. He, he's the true one that would actually be able uh, to come. And he's, there's going to be a first coming when he would come, and he's going to He's going to start. He's going to inaugurate his, his kingdom. And Christ has already come. His first coming has, has already happened. Christ has already come. It happened a couple thousand years ago. There's the first coming of Christ, but then there's also the second coming of Christ, which is yet to come, that Christ is coming again for the second time. And here's the anticipation that we should have. There's a, there's a new leader to come, 
Oh, thank God, there's a new leader to come. And then not only is there a new leader to come, there's also a new city to come. There's a new city to come. This Jerusalem in the story was only a, only a part of the story. It's only a shadow of the story. It's only a glimpse of the story because there's even a better and brighter city that's on its way. There's a new city that's coming. There's a new leader that's coming. And we've got to have a windshield mindset looking forward to that day that is approaching when Jesus comes and he brings the new city. I love what, I love what the, end, the, the very end of the entire Bible. You ever read the book of Revelation, by the way? It's, you got to read the end of the book every now and then, y'all. You got to you gotta cheat. Always cheats. We're, we're, we're watching TV series, and, she, and she'll, she'll, watch the, she'll read the bloopers. And I'm like, you can't do that. She's like, but I need to know how this is going to end. <laughs> the end of the book, it says this in Revelation 21.1. John, John the Apostle, he says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. He's got a vision. He's able to see into the future and what God's going to bring. I saw the holy city, a new, a new Jerusalem, not the old one. Uh, this, they, they rebuilt the city walls, but there's some new walls that are coming. The, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. That was, must have been amazing. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. It's like she's walking down the aisle. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. All things new. This is the second coming of Christ. At the end of this age, and no one in the room and no one on the planet knows when the end of this age will happen. Jesus would even say only the Father knows. At the end of this age, Christ will return. And Christ will return as a judge. What we see in the character of Christ and what we see in the character of God is that God is both a loving God, but he is also a just God. It's two sides of the same coin. God is a loving God. That means he is abundant in grace. He's abundant in mercy. He is abundant in compassion that he loves, but he's also a God of justice, which means God doesn't let evil triumph forever. God does not put up with injustice. That God is a God, and you should be grateful for this, God is a God that makes sure that justice is served. He's a God that makes sure justice is served. And Christ will come, uh, and the scriptures say, to judge the living and the dead. That there's coming a day where Christ will judge. He will judge the world. He will judge every human. He will judge every person. And his judgment will not be whether or not you did a good job. His judgment will not be if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. His judgment will be, does his blood cover you? And the story of the gospel and the good news is that Christ came for you and he gave himself for you. And that in faith, not of your own works, but in faith, if you trust Christ and believe in what he has done for you, by faith, his blood covers you and forgives you and cleanses you of all sin. And he did it by faith because if it was by works, you'd always be patting yourself on the back because of what you accomplished. But it's not based on works, it's based on faith, which means you have to get to a point in your life where you surrender to God and you accept his salvation and forgiveness in your life. But the problem with most of us is that we don't feel like we need salvation. But it's not until you get to the point of surrender and submission before God on your knees, on your knees where you say, I need you and I need your salvation in my life. And to those who trust him in faith, his blood covers them. And they are now in 
Christ. And the power of the cross is that Christ took on your injustice for you. He already went to the cross for you, taking on sin and shame that he died the death that you were meant to die. When Christ returns at his second coming to judge the living and the dead, those who are in Christ will be with him forever, and those who are not will be separated from him forever. I love how Jesus would encourage his disciples in John 14, verse 1. He would say, let not your hearts be troubled. Which is, by the way... um, could I ask you what the, what is the condition of your heart today? Just out of curiosity. What is the condition of your heart? He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And then he says, in my father's house are many rooms. The old King Jimmy says many mansions. There's many rooms in God's house. And if it were not so, What I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And Jesus says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. So after the final judgment, those who are in Christ will join God in the kingdom of heaven forever. It's a final kingdom. It's a new city that's coming. I don't want to get into all the eschatology of the nature of the details of when and exactly and how this is happening. But regardless of where you land on the eschatological spectrum, one thing that is sure is that after the final judgment, Jesus is going to bring his kingdom, his his final kingdom forever. And those who are in Christ will reign forever. Here's how I'd like to end. With a wonderful keys padding in the background. Thank you, Ethan. But seriously... I think it's important that we in this life make sure that we maintain and we hold on to a heavenly perspective. Tell your neighbor, tell somebody around you, say heaven is on the way. You need to believe today that heaven is on the way. Uh, You you need to believe that in some ways, yes, we can experience uh, heavenly moments in this life, um, but ultimately heaven is is on uh, the way. Heaven is coming. There's a new city that's coming. There's a new leader who's coming. There's going to be a new government that's going to come. There's going to be a new order. There's going to be a new kingdom altogether. And that kingdom is heaven. And that gives us great hope. And I'll encourage you with this as I close. What is heaven like? What is heaven like? Well, these scriptures, they tell us, number one, heaven is a place of presence. It's a place of presence. It's, it's the place, it's the dwelling place of God. Did you know that God's entire agenda throughout the entire world, even at the very beginning from the foundations of the world, is he just wanted to dwell with us. He just wanted to live with us. He just wanted to exist with us. That was his entire purpose in the beginning. If you look at the very early chapters of Genesis, what did God make? He, he made a garden. He made a garden in humanity, and he actually walked through the garden every day with Adam and Eve until things went south. When we get to heaven, Jesus is reclaiming the garden experience. Heaven brings us back into the full dwelling of God. It's it's a place of presence. It's a place of God's presence. It's a place of complete, full presence of God. Every moment, every second, every situation, it's, it's blanketed with his presence. Heaven is a place of presence, but here's what we also see that it Heaven is a place of peace. It's a, it's a place of peace. Um, you know, when you see people on TV, they, they pray for world peace. And they ask for world peace. Um, I think it's a noble desire and prayer. 
but true peace is only coming in the final kingdom. It's only coming in heaven. And when we get to heaven and we experience heaven, heaven's going to be a, a place of peace. No more division on social media. No more fighting with your spouse. I don't fight with my spouse, but no more fighting with you and your spouse. And no more, uh, no more political mailers in your mailbox. Um, oh, what a day that will be. Heaven is a place of, of, of peace and there's not going to be uh, room for tears and crying and it's all going to be wiped away. And then finally, heaven is a place of permanence. It's a place of permanence. It's a place of finality. It, it, it's, it's a place of permanence. And when we get to heaven, it will be a forever place. It'll be a forever place with him. And so the Apostle Paul would, in light of this concept, he would encourage the Thessalonians and he would encourage you and me with this scripture. It says this in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know that what will happen to the believers who have died, so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel and with a trumpet call of God. And first the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. Encourage each other with these words. You got to say heaven is on the way. I came here to tell somebody today that heaven is on the way. I came here to tell somebody in depression that heaven is on the way. I came here to tell somebody in discouragement that heaven is on the way. I came here to tell somebody who is defeated today that heaven is on the way. And let's look through the windshield and believe and trust that something better is come. Tell somebody that something better is coming. Something better is coming. Something better is coming. And when life doesn't go the way that we want it to, and when people fail us and leaders fail us and things, our plans don't end up the way that we think that we should, we can be reminded and we can encourage one another that heaven is on the way, that God's not done. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name today, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that the story of our lives isn't a story of faithfulness, that the story of the scriptures isn't a story about our faithfulness, but the story of the scriptures is about your faithfulness. Your faithfulness for all generations to a thousand generations. So Father, today we anchor our hope today, not in our body image, not in a bank account, not in a career, not in a relationship, not in a home, but we anchor our hope today in you, the only one who does not fail. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed today, I would be remiss to bypass an opportunity for business with God. Where are you today in your own life with God? Where do you need to do business with God today? The most important reality in the world is your relationship with God.
what you believe about God, what you experience with God, it's more important than any other thing on the planet. Where are you with God today? Do you know God today? Do do you have a relationship with God today? Are you in Christ? The way that you know that, some of you are sure, some of you might be unsure. The way that you can be sure that you are in Christ is by surrendering your life to Christ. Putting your faith and trust in who He is and what He has done for you. It's not through being a better person. It's not through getting baptized. It's not through trying harder. It's not through morality or religious rules. It's through faith. You can't do it. It's through faith, trusting that Jesus can do it, that He can save you. If you're a person today that needs to surrender to Christ, I would encourage you to surrender your life to Christ today. Maybe even in a prayer today, say, Father, today I give my life to you. I trust you. I trust you with my life and I receive your salvation.